You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. My name is Asa Kamer. I'm the producer of the show, and our normal host, Radhika, is not with us this week, so I'm going to be filling in. Today, we are going to be talking about carbon removal policy in the next Congress, and we had planned to talk about what what the prospects are for carbon removal policy in the U.S. over the next two years, and things are not quite clear what the composition of the Congress is going to be. So that does complicate it a little bit. We're recording here on Thursday afternoon. Um, But I think we have a general sense and enough to kind of lead into the conversation. And we're going to kind of talk about bipartisanship anyway. So I think that's probably where that's going to lead. So joining us this week uh, is Savvy Bowman, Program Manager at ClearPath. Hi, Savvy. Thanks for having me. Yes, wonderful. Carly Matthews, Communication Director at the American Conservation Coalition. Hi, Carly. Hey, thanks for having me. So the last two years have seen a lot of advancements for carbon removal policy uh, in terms of the federal government. The Democratic Party, when they controlled the Congress and the White House, did some of that unilaterally. And there was also some bipartisan legislation that supported carbon removal. Um, In terms of the Democrats passing a loan, there was the significant increase to the 45Q tax credit that was included in their Inflation Reduction Act. And in terms of bipartisan legislation, we also saw uh, CDR funding in the infrastructure bill, as well as the CHIPS Act. So what can we expect from the federal government in the next two years? Will what will probably be divided government, I think most likely we can say the Republicans are going to win the House. So assuming that we have divided government, was that going to bring more or less support for CDR? So just to start with, I would love to hear from both of you your reactions to this election from the perspective of climate and if possible carbon removal, certainly not the top of the headlines, you know, today, but when you think about climate legislation in the next couple of years and carbon removal, what does the election make you think we might be looking at in the next two years? So Savvy, I'll pick it to you first. Yeah. So thank you so much for your question and great question. Um, while, as you you know, currently mentioned, we don't really have a decision, we can kind of make that prediction that the um, Republicans are likely going to take the House. And while there's still a lot of uncertainty, what's clear is that bipartisan cooperation is going to be essential to advance any meaningful policy in the next Congress. Even in the current Congress, most of the me- major energy legislation that was enacted was either enacted on a bipartisan basis or contained provisions that have historically enjoyed bipartisan support. Unfortunately, technology innovation has always been a bipartisan space, so I am optimistic about carbon removal because I think it's a technology area that both parties can support. The CREST Act, or the Carbon Removal and Emissions Storage Technologies Act, which was introduced by Senators Susan Collins from Maine and Maria Cantwell from Washington State, is actually a great example of how to advance carbon removal policy on a bipartisan basis. Excellent. Thanks. And Carly, what do you think? Absolutely. I'd I'd echo everything that Savvy said. Um, Obviously, we didn't see a red wave. And anytime there's a narrow majority, as Democrats experienced the last Congress, 
you have to work with the other party nine times out of 10 if you're going to get anything done. So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what bipartisan legislation can be enacted and what what legislators are willing to work on together. Um, on NBC News election night, um, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina suggested maybe something could get done on energy. And when I think energy, I think energy innovation, which to me includes CDR and R&D on carbon removal technologies. So um, I'm optimistic. We'll see what happens. Um, but I'm hoping that um, both both parties will be willing to work together. And, you know, this this might be more of like a narrative thing. I don't really know how legislators actually end up thinking about it. But to me, I you you kind of think if there's a narrow win on some ways, does that suggest that voters are maybe sending a message of moderation? They're not necessarily giving a huge thumbs up to the president. They're not necessarily, you know, going all the way with the other parties. There's some, you know, I guess I would like to think legislators might take to heart a bit of, yeah, work together, you know, kind of figure out some of these core issues that Americans are obviously facing, energy prices being a huge one. So, I mean, it, you guys are both in in DC, you're very plugged in. Is that is that true? Or is it just kind of back to, you know, back to the bunker, fight for everything? Carly, I'll let Carly take a stab. <laughs> okay, go for it. Go for it. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think when when it comes down to it, a lot of legislators really are friends across the aisle and, and want to work together on things. Um, at ACC, we try our best to work across the aisle as much as possible. And um, we did an event, I believe it was last year with Abigail Spanberger and Don Bacon, who are really good friends and were able to work on the Growing Climate Solutions Act together, um, which passed the Senate, but it doesn't look like it'll make it through the House this session. Um, so I really do think that there are opportunities for legislators to really work across the aisle. I think that you know, the best legislators we have want to do that. Um, and, you know, politics gets in the way sometimes, but but I, th I think that a lot of folks here in Washington want to do want to do what's what's right. And I think what's right is working across the aisle. Hmm. Savvy, anything to add? Yeah, I think that was a really great summary. And if anything, um, you know, as we see with policy movements, the bipartisan solutions are the ones that get across the finish line without any concern or heartburn later of like, is there going to be any backsliding or any issues with the policy later on? So I think bipartisanship is something, um, you know, we strive for as, as well to have that communication across the aisle. Um, but of course, it, politics sometimes, of course, gets in the way. So it's just sometimes the moment in trying to figure out how, how we can leverage um, relationships and, and how we can also work uh, to get what's what's clean tech and what's um, needed through through and out the door. Very cool. And they say the best climate legislation is the one that can pass. Savvy, I've got another question for you, which is that, you know, it's kind of related to what we're talking about. You Your work with ClearPath, I think with legislators, you work on some pretty esoteric and some pretty complex energy issues. Um, you know, I would doubt that every member of Congress is fully in the weeds on some of this stuff. Um, in terms of carbon removal, what is their general level of familiarity and what kind of questions are they asking? That is another really great question. And it's interesting because it varies and it's exciting to see so many policymakers from both parties interested in carbon removal. Everyone knows that trees capture carbon dioxide, but carbon removal is still a new topic we're no longer just doing the tried and true method of planting a tree. Now we have companies like Charm Industrial that's pyrolyzing biomass residue and turning it into bio oil to store underground. 
we have direct air capture companies like Carbon Engineering, Carbon Capture Inc. that are taking out CO2 from the air in Texas and Wyoming, if I remember that correctly. And then rock weathering companies like Luthos. So innovators are getting very creative with the way that they're trying to solve this Rubik's Cube and it can get kind of tough to keep up. Um, and some congressional staff members uh, and staff, sorry, are so well-versed that they'd like don't need any 101 explainers before jumping into policy solution discussions while others have never heard of carbon removal. So I would say it varies, um, but the vast majority are eager to learn if they don't know. And the questions that they're asking, they're asking, what is the case for government action? Where is the technology now versus where it needs to be? How do we focus on the implementation of the programs like the director capture hubs, which was recently passed in the bipartisan infrastructure package? And then in terms of policy structure, how is it going to interact with current policy mechanisms, like you mentioned, 45Q? Or how do we structure programs to set them up for success and ensure competitiveness? So um, something that I think is really unique about the CREST Act is that it is a great example of policy tackling the need to innovate and develop solutions, but then also scale them through a technology-inclusive, competitive federal carbon purchase program. That's a mouthful. But the key is technology-inclusive. I think, um, you know, a lot of these solutions that we see out there in the policy space today um, have the focus on DAC. And I think seeing that shift to a lot of different carbon removal solutions is interesting because there are so many that are coming out. And, you know, congressional members and staffers, they work on so many different things like healthcare or defense. And so they need to know what this very specific thing is and how one process can greatly differ from another. So it's also important for policymakers to understand it because we're asking for a lot of money to be put into these programs and rightfully so. Um, but you know, Congress needs to know why it's important. So they look for the experts to then tell them what the technologies are and why they matter. Right. And since you mentioned it, are there, since you're saying there are legislators who are very plugged in on carbon removal and their staffs are very knowledgeable, any that you want to shout out just for our curiosity right now? Who Are there any that okay. are really like, that are really that are really in the weeds on this well gosh i i have to say that molly ryan at senator um cantwell's or sorry senator collins's office is super plugged in she as when we were going in and because we were working with her on the crest act and we helped sort of develop some of the text behind it she was so plugged in on the technologies themselves and was rather more focused on like, does this policy make sense? And that was so interesting of a conversation rather than actually having to spend the time talking through a one-on-one <laughs> carbon removal. So wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that and it speaks to how fast this is, this issue is getting, getting attention that there's senators, staffers who are, who are that plugged in. So that's really cool. Um, Carly, I want to, kick it back to you here. So the ACC, the organization you're with, it's a leading right of center environmental organization. And do you get the sense there's a lot of interest in carbon removal among Republicans? I mean, we just heard about Susan Collins' office, but is there legislation they might be interested in now that they probably control the House along with the Democrats controlling other parts of government? Sure. Yeah. I think that carbon removal generally is definitely really top of mind for both elected Republicans, but also conservative climate advocates. 
um, you know, technological innovation has always been kind of at the heart of what a conservative climate approach is. So I think that carbon removal technologies fit really nicely into that. But I think we're also seeing some kind of I don't know, enthusiasm perhaps for natural climate solutions and even um, natural carbon carbon sequestration. Uh, I know Savvy said, you know, we're beyond the point where it's just as simple as planting a tree, but there is some enthusiasm for doing just that, planting trees and, and restoring ecosystems. So um, some legislation that comes to mind um, for me on that is the Trillion Trees Act. Um, I mentioned the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which, which has a kind of agricultural focus. Um, as far as technologies go, um, I think that Frank Lucas has a bill, it's called the Securing American Leadership in Science and Technology Act. And that really um, works on kind of the research side of what carbon sequestration technologies can do and what they can be. Um, so I think there's a lot of enthusiasm. I actually think this is um, not only a really bipartisan um, topic, but it's also something that Republicans bring, um, you know, kind of some real enthusiasm, real willingness to come to the table on. Yeah, I mean, that that does really make sense, especially when you consider, you know, there are some solutions that will require expertise from oil and gas industry and take place, like Savvy was saying, in a place like Texas or Oklahoma or Wyoming. Um, you know, Wyoming is leading the way in a lot of ways in terms of state preparedness for carbon sequestration. So, you know, it definitely seems like a, a natural fit. Just to, to go off of what you're saying about the, you know, the natural solutions you've written um, about this and you have a a piece that was titled the urban rural climate divide should be bridged by nature which is a very nice headline and can you tell us what you meant by that and what type of carbon removal approaches we're talking about and you know the thing that interests me and this is something we've talked about with your colleague chris a lot is you know carbon removal will imply investment and so if it's taking place in rural areas theoretically this is something that would be you know a boon to people who live there, be it in the form of jobs or whatever. So, I mean, what does that look like to you, this this, this uh, climate divide being bridged by nature? Can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. It, it was definitely one of my favorite pieces I've written. Um, just for some background, I grew up in really rural Pennsylvania and climate wasn't really a topic that we talked about at all, but agriculture and environmental stewardship absolutely were. So um, when I started working for ACC, now I live in, I don't want to call it the concrete jungle, but I live in a city now. I live in DC. Um, so I kind of saw this like divide of how rural folks think about climate and the environment, but then how people in urban areas think about it. Um, and I realized that in both situations, I wanted to be surrounded by green space and trees. Um, and it didn't matter if I was in um, in DC or if I was back home in Pennsylvania. So kind of the idea of this piece is that natural climate solutions are really kind of that that bridge of climate action um, that both rural and urban people can really get behind, right? In urban areas, you know, you kind of crave um, green space, kind of break up the, the asphalt and the concrete. Um, and actually it has some kind of co-benefits, not related to climate per se, but, you know, kind of lowering um, on-ground temperatures, improving air quality, things like that. Um, and then in rural areas, um, you know, you're always thinking about stewardship and making sure soil quality is, is high so that agricultural practices are um, successful and, and bountiful. Um, so, Natural climate solutions are by no means kind of a silver bullet, but I think that engaging in 
sustainable and regenerative agriculture is really kind of the, the gateway to climate action for rural communities, um, reforestation, um, proper forest management. Um, those things are you know common sense conservation tactics, but they're also climate action. And that was kind of the idea of the piece. Very cool. So Savvy, I'm going to do a bit of a 180 here and go from natural solutions to technical solutions and talk about direct air capture. Um, the bipartisan um, infrastructure bill from a couple years ago, as you mentioned, had 3.5 billion for DAC hubs. That's now in the implementation phase through the Department of Energy. So do you think the next Congress is going to continue to support DAC? You kind of touched on this a little bit, but either through funding or sort of focused implementation of um, you know, the DAC hubs, uh, or are there other issues in terms of research or, or tax credits that DAC needs? Because as all the projections show, it needs to scale really fast to have an impact. So do you think Congress is going to continue to look at that, that specific technology? Yes, but the conversation is evolving even beyond DAC. You know, like I mentioned before, DAC is a wonderful solution because it has all the traits of high quality removal that um, folks are looking for. It's additional, it's measurable, it's durable, but policymakers don't want to pick winners. Um, they want a level playing field for carbon removal solutions to compete based on those qualities and understanding what qualities we're even looking for, generally speaking, because I think the conversation within the CDR community is various, like it varies from person to person. So getting that um, sort of understanding is also really critical. And innovators are focused on scaling their solutions to meet that gigaton goal, which seems far away, you know, 10 gigatons annually by 2050. It's like almost like this amorphous idea, but there are steps that we need to take in the interim and areas to tackle next. I would say our implementation of the programs that I mentioned, uh, or DAC hubs particularly, permitting and scaling the technology while supporting the early stage R&D. So on the implementation side, um, you know, we, we've got the support now, but the Department of Energy, um, the Office of Technology Transitions actually, in partnership with the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management, just recently, I think on Monday, issued a notice of intent to issue a lab call on carbon dioxide removal, measurement, reporting, and verification best practices and capabilities. So experts should be engaging with these opportunities at DOE or even other federal agencies to provide their insights on how to measure net removals, improve the data modeling transparency, and develop the best practices and protocols for the processes because we are literally laying the groundwork now and this is a really unique opportunity. So that engagement is really critical. And then on the permitting and storage, uh, permitting side, storage and infrastructure are gonna be huge. Um, we're gonna, as, as soon as we start capturing all the CO2, we're gonna need to put it somewhere and we're gonna need to transport it. And right now, um, if we look at states with primacy for class six injection, there's only two states. And just so you know, Primacy is the ability for the state to process the permit rather than the federal EPA. And that's North Dakota right now and Wyoming um, that have primacy capability, which is why it's no brainer that like Carbon Capture Inc. put their project in Wyoming. <laughs> um, and then you have CDR tech deployment that's needed through advanced market commitments that you, um, you can see in different sort of bipartisan legislation, um, particularly Crest Act again. And then we've in terms of tax, you mentioned that earlier, we've already done a lot of tax, so there's not likely to be a huge tax opportunity anytime soon. Um, but I think the last thing I would say is supporting the research development piece as well. We, 
their CDR is all over the map. You have solutions that are ready to go, but you also have solutions that need further testing. So supporting that as we continue to develop is still going to be needed. Great. And just in terms of the classics, well issue and the primacy, could you, I mean, <laughs> I, I've heard that there's like two classics wells that are functional right now in the country mm -hmm. or something like that. And, you know, it, it's, it's a very long process to get, you know, to apply, to be able to use it and all this. And, is that a bottleneck to scaling up DAC? And is that something that you think could realistically be addressed on a bipartisan way? Or is there some, you know, is there some aspect of politics that is making it, you know, sort of a bottleneck? Or is that something that could be fixed easily? Or what's going on with that issue? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. And also, um, I don't think people necessarily think of this too much because it's kind of like, oh, it's in the future. You know, we're, we're mm -hmm. building DAC right now. We're, we're focused on scaling up. And to be fair, we're not even in the gigaton scale zone of capture. You know, we're still capturing in the hundreds of tons, metric tons area. So in terms of the urgency, no, it's not there. But as soon as you start capturing too much CO2 to actually have on site, you need to put it somewhere. And that's where it's going to come into play. And especially with all these huge climate targets that a bunch of folks are putting forward to meet, you're going to need, if these purchase commitments are met and the deliverables in terms of the purchase CO2 are start getting rolled out, then you're going to need that capacity for storage. And I think permitting is a particularly bipartisan space. I think you're going to get interest um, from Republicans who want to make sure that there's opportunity to store a lot of this and i mean historically there's been a lot of bipartisanship in this space as well with 45q as you mentioned so i i think um which has the storage component as well so i think you know long term it's going to be more of a focus and i don't think people realize it will be a bottleneck but with the current delays like to put it into perspective for you to get an epa um, permit federally I think it takes something like six, to, it took six to seven years. Um, and then if you wanted to get like a state um, permit, it's like six to nine months, I believe. Um, but don't quote me on those numbers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I, I think I remember from reading documents. And that probably brings with it a whole host of issues with investment too. I mean, companies are probably struggling here. <laughs> You know, might struggle to raise money if they have to tell their investors, yeah, maybe in seven years we'll get approved and we can do what we say we're going to do. But maybe that's another another story. Um, so, you know, thinking about the next two years, thinking about where we're headed here um, for climate legislation, carbon removal. Um, Carly, you mentioned the Growing Climate Solutions Act. Could you, you know, is there, I mean, it's probably too soon to say we don't know who's going to be in leadership, but is that something that you think will get brought up again? And is there other legislation regarding natural solutions that you're looking at, that you're hopeful for, that the ACC is, is pushing um, that you think might have a chance in the next couple of years? Sure, yeah. I, I think GCSA um, certainly should be reintroduced next Congress. I mean, it, it made it through the Senate with, I believe, 92 yes votes. Wow. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty stunning. I mean, I think the only times we see majorities like that are for like post office namings. Um, so it really is a shame that it didn't make it through the house. Um, but we'd love to see that reintroduced. Um, I think this is, this will be the third Congress of the Trillion Trees Act 
um, is reintroduced. And then kind of related to that, um, the Save Our Sequoias Act is um, something that Republicans have been working on, um, specifically Weider McCarthy and Representative David Valadeo in California um, to really protect those sequoia forests, but also make sure that they're proper, properly managed so that if and when fires do break out, those trees aren't, aren't threatened um, by, you know, brush and other trees that are you know, dying or dead, um, just kind of laying around ready to be set aflame. So those are some things we're looking at. Um, as far as blue carbon goes, um, Senator Murkowski and um, Representative Brian Mast have both introduced the Blue Carbon for Our Planet Act. Um, so that's something that we're watching as well. Um, you know, blue carbon has you know, kind of a wealth of opportunities. We don't even really know its capability yet. So that's definitely something that we're, we're thinking about. Wow, that's that's cool. So you have Republican legislators talking about sustainable agriculture, talking about old growth forests, talking about blue carbon. I mean, not to insert my own opinion, but this is the kind of things I would love to hear them talking about more. And I know that's what you're working on, trying to trying to get them to to, to push them on that. And you know, to the push, I do want to hear a little bit more about the Growing Climate Solutions Act. Can you tell us why it it wasn't wasn't able to pass the House? I mean, who's who's holding it up? I'd have to assume some Democrats if it was Democratic House. So what, what's going on there? Yeah, so it's a little complicated what's going on in the House. There's definitely opposition um, from elected Democrats, but also some environmental groups um, because, you know, it the Growing Climate Solutions Act is not a silver bullet solution. Um, it's a small bill. I think um, it sounds weird saying this is small, but it's only like a couple million dollars of spending. So, um, you know, in the scheme of the federal government, that's tiny. Um, but the idea of carbon markets can be um, pretty controversial with some environmental groups. They see it as, you know, kind of opening the door to fossil fuels. Um, we, of course, at ACC disagree with that and think that, you know, natural solutions, carbon markets are an important piece of the puzzle. Um, but it was just kind of held up in the House Agricultural Committee. Um, there was some opposition too from Republicans who are a little worried about, you know, kind of the so-called slippery slope of pricing carbon. Um, so it definitely took some heat from both sides and we're hoping that next Congress that could be resolved. Mm. Very cool. We'll have to get an update from Chris or yourself about that because that's one we've been following too. Um, so one another piece of legislation I want to talk I uh, wanted to ask you both about is uh, GOP senator from Iowa Chuck Grassley who I guess is a farmer himself um, has proposed legislation with a group of um, other Democratic and Republican senators representing mostly some of rural states to do research into biochar and so for the CDR nerds in our audience which is most of you you know about biochar. Um, which is, you know, usually made from agricultural products and is then used as a field amendment and uh, theoretically stores CO2. But I don't know, it's not something I would think much about the wider world knowing about, let alone like the federal government. So Savvy, what's, what's going on there with Chuck Grassley talking about biochar? <laughs> well, I mean, biochar is a particularly unique space. There is, um, a lot of benefits to it. It's getting a lot of momentum right now. Um, there's various sources for biochar, for biochar where it can be made from, as many of you know, um, many of which is the result of agriculture and forest residue, which can be sourced from many rural communities, which a lot of these members are, are representing. 
Um, and biochar has many benefits beyond just the carbon removal piece. So the soil health piece and the enhanced crop yield, which actually has the benefit of increased food production. I think these are some of the benefits that, that are kind of um, advantageous in supporting something like biochar. But I think there's also interest in innovation at large in carbon removal. I don't think it's just biochar. So, I mean, you've seen a lot of uh, interest in DAC, but there's also interest in mineralization, in BECS, in marine CDRs becoming more popular, as Carly mentioned just a second ago. Um, you know, Senator Lisa Murkowski is super interested in blue carbon, and so is uh, Senator Susan Collins. In her bill, she kind of expands, in press actually expands a lot of provisions within um, research and development to look at ocean carbon removal pathways like electrochemical separation of CO2 from seawater. That's something that, you know, we're testing in labs. We don't have a permitting landscape for. So there's, there is interest and momentum broadly. That's, that's super exciting. Um, Carly, anything you want to add about, about this biochar bill or R&D in general? I'll just add that um, you mentioned the bill in the Senate, but um, Congressman Bruce Westerman is the only licensed forester in Congress. Um, and if Republicans take the House, he is destined for the gavel of House Natural Resources. So I think that biochar is definitely on the top of his mind and it'll have some momentum in, in the House if it makes it past the Senate. Okay, great. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, so speaking of Republicans controlling the House, um, it hasn't been a top campaign issue. And I actually was reading a, an interesting article, which I'll put in the show notes about how after the uh, cap and trade bill that the Democrats tried to pass in the 0809 session that they didn't pass, it was actually, that attempt was actually the cause of a lot of Democratic congressmen and women losing their seats because it was unpopular. Whereas this time you really didn't hear much about the Inflation Reduction Act at all and didn't really come into play in the campaign. So that's a bit of an aside, but nonetheless, um, you, while it wasn't a big campaign issue, you did have, you know, you've had Republicans expressing skepticism about it, frustration, especially, you know, the spending elements of it, which they're predisposed to generally not support, and they didn't support in that bill. Um, and, you know, if they do have the gavel, as they likely will, as Carly mentioned, they've promised oversight, um, at least over energy issues, um, including some of the spending involved in the IRA. And, you know, I have to wonder if they, let's say, maybe this is going even, even farther afield, but in 2024, if they're to gain even more power, I mean, I think there is a fear among Democrats and climate supporters, you know, would they repeal the IRA? Would they repeal parts of it? Would, would they not? We, we, we don't really know. And it's, it's kind of impossible to know, but there is maybe a, a fear about backsliding on, on certain aspects of our climate progress that, at least on the Democratic side, they're very excited about in the last two years. So I just want to hear what you two think about that. You know, is that is that possible? Is that something they might do? Or um, is it too popular? Or do we not know? What do you, what do you think, Carly? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think the process by which the Inflation Reduction Act was passed was bad for bipartisan climate action, just to be, to be frank. Um, you know, being kind of chopped out of the process, Joe Manchin kind of flipping back and forth, you know, will he, won't he support? Um, I think Republicans had kind of a sour taste in their mouth from the politics of it all. And it's really a shame because there's elements of the IRA that fit perfectly into climate and energy policy that Republicans support. Um, so given that, my thought is that um, 
the IRA is fairly safe. I don't think there will be repeals. I think, um, in fact, a lot of the money will benefit redder congressional districts, mm-hmm. um, and we'll see kind of the the benefits reaped there. Um, but there will be oversight, right? And there, you know, there will be certainly some messaging that. Um, is unfavorable to at least the way that the IRA was passed um, and certainly some of the the non-climate provisions of it, um, which I think were perhaps a little bit more controversial for Republicans. Um, So I'm really hoping that, you know, come January, we kind of shove that aside and and try to move forward. Um, But, you know, I I think there there is a little bit of, um, of bad blood there of just kind of the way that it was passed. And we're already seeing that play out with permitting reform, right? That should have been, you know, a bipartisan follow-up to that, but Republicans kind of put their foot down. Right. Savvy, any any thoughts to add? I think Carly covered it actually really well. The only thing I would note is that, um, or maybe underscore, is, you know, Republicans have historically been supportive of several provisions from the Re- reconciliation bill, you know, 45Q particularly, um, which was expanded in the tax package. But I think ClearPath believes that a GOP-led House will be focused on solution-oriented policies that were laid out in the Energy, Climate, and Conservation Task Force Policy Framework. Um, If you'd like to learn more about it, uh, feel free to check out clearpathaction.org. It has a full rundown on on sort of that framework. Um, But I think to Carly's point, you know, it's it's maybe going to take a little bit of time to get get to a happy medium and, and the sort of bridge point where both for folks are working together um, on, on these policies, but um, I think it's it's going to be solutions focused and, and we want to focus on innovation and make sure that a lot of these technologies do get to scale. So there is definitely opportunity. Cool. So for my last question for both of you, um, I just want to, you know, I just, just to give our, our listeners a bit of a sense of what kind of work you do Tell us a little about your organizations and, you know, the, the issues you're focusing on, that sort of thing. We kind of skipped past this at the beginning. Sure. Um, well, so ClearPath is a D.C.-based nonprofit. Uh, we work on uh, developing and advancing policies that accelerate innovations to reduce emissions in the energy and industrial sectors um, historically. So we've been around for, I think, about eight or nine years. Um, and we work on white space technologies. And when I say that, think like nuclear, carbon capture, geothermal. Um, in the last, I would say, two to three years, we've expanded that to heavy industry because we identified that as another white space opportunity area. Um, you know, a lot of eyes are focused on transportation or, or power sector, and we thought, let's go for the next big thing, industry. And so that's that's one. And then, of course, CDR. Um, and so we work to, you know, inform pragmatic policy thinking. Um, and, you know, we engage with Republicans um, through our government affairs arm that that works with us. But myself personally, I'm actually, my background is in private sector. So I used to work at Tesla doing solar and storage asset management, which was a, a great experience. And I learned a lot. But I think after my master's at Columbia University, uh, meeting Julio Friedman, actually, who is one of the uh, leading thinkers in carbon removal, um, he kind of got me excited about the space. And that's how I um, found ClearPath and have joined here. And now I lead on our carbon dioxide removal portfolio um, and support industrial decarbonization as well. 
Graywell Julio gets a lot of shouts out, shout outs on our show <laughs> and a lot of mentions. So well, yet another way he's influencing the field by getting you involved. That's pretty cool. Um, and Carly, can you can you answer the same question and tell us a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. So the American Conservation Coalition was founded in 2017, and our mission is to engage young conservatives on the environment and to build the conservative environmental movement. Um, so we're a grassroots organization. We have branches of activists across the country, um, but we also have full-time staff of which I am one. Um, and so my day-to-day -day is um, all things media relations, messaging. Um, basically, I talk with our policy people and figure out how to say it in English um, and communicate that out to our base. So um, we have been really successful in kind of engaging this new um, constituency of young conservatives who, unlike their older counterparts, are really concerned about climate change and want climate solutions. Um, and that's kind of been our our um, our strategy is, is building that movement and, and ensuring that it has political power. Um, it's been great talking with you both. We usually end our shows with a good news segment. So I'm just going to pull something up here that I found to read for good news. So um, there's an organization called or a group called America is All In, which is a coalition of businesses and local leaders. And I think Bloomberg, um, Mayor Mike, former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg, and they released a report that found that um, even if Congress flips, which it looks like it, it will, that the U.S. climate target of reducing uh, emissions by 50 percent by 2030 uh, is possible. So it's still possible um, if Democrats who you know passed the last big legislation are not in power. And they found that the incentives that were passed in the in the Inflation Reduction Act um, and the uh, bipartisan um, uh, infrastructure bill were effective enough that we're sort of already on the path with um, you know investment and build out of renewable energy um, and closing coal plants, notably to um, theoretically get to that goal by 2030 anyway. So I thought that was nice. I mean, when, you know, Congress can't get in the way of something and it's on its way on its own, that's a comforting feeling. Um, yeah, so that's our good news. And hopefully by next week, we'll know what's going on with the election. I'm sure everyone out there is paying attention on their own. You don't come to us for um, that sort of analysis. We haven't branched out into that yet. But anyway, Savvy and Carly, thank you both so much for joining us. It was great to have you. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.